So have you ever been sitting somewhere and you didn't want to get up? I mean, you know, Sunday sermon, you know, you just don't want it to end, you know. Um, I, I would imagine all of us had a little moment where we were sitting somewhere and we just, we just didn't want to get up. Story told about an old mountain man named Jed. Jed and his wife, they're uh, sitting in front of the fireplace, just enjoying the warmth one night. And Jed's wife said, Jed, I think it's raining. How about go out there and, and look and see? Jed just kept staring at the fire, staring at the fire. After a moment or two, he said, you know what? Why don't we call the dog in and just see if he's wet? Jed didn't want to get up. Jed didn't want to move. We're like Jed sometimes, right? We don't want to get up, you know? We don't want to get up. We, we, don't, we don't want to move. We don't want to get up. We don't want to go out. We don't want to stay in. We don't want to call people. We don't want to call people back. We don't want to listen to people's advice, and we don't want to hear people's problems. And we don't want to pray, and we don't want to read, and we don't want to sing. We don't want to try to help. We don't want to try to change. We don't want to try to learn. We don't want to try to love. We don't want to try to try. We don't want to deal with it, whatever it may be. But here's the thing. You need to get up. And you need to move. You need to move. You need to move. I don't mean right now. You can keep your seat. It's fine. <laughs> and, and I don't mean go home and start packing the dishes, okay? But, but you need to move. I, I, I don't know what you need to move toward. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I know you need to move. God is calling you to do something. He's, he's calling after you. He wants you to move. How do I know that? Well, you were created to move. You were created to move. What does that mean? Well, let's see if we can think through it. The nation is full of chaos. It's, it's full of conflict. People are, are basically doing, you know, whatever they think is right. Politicians are corrupt. Families are dysfunctional. Poverty and homelessness are on the rise. Sexual morality is, is branching out into to deeper depravities than, than ever before. Lust and lewdness, addiction, they're, they're all rampant. The rich are getting richer. The middle class is getting more comfortable. Religion is being mocked. And superpowers are building up cutting-edge military weapons. Now, I just described the Middle East 700 years before Jesus was born. Sounded familiar, though, didn't it? And what were the people of God doing in the middle of all that? Middle of all that chaos and conflict, what were they doing? Well, they were moving. They, they were moving. But they were moving away from God. The people of God were moving away from from God. In the middle of all that chaos, in the middle of all that conflict, God had a message for the church folks, and he had a message really for the world. He gave his message to Isaiah, 
Isaiah 53, I'm sorry, Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. You were made for the glory of God. But that's why you were created. Your heart and your mind and your soul, they long for the glory of God. Even if you don't know it or don't know it yet, your soul longs for the glory of God. When you stand at the edge of the ocean, when you stand looking out over the Blue Ridge Mountains, your soul does not scream, this is about me. I am a great student athlete. I am really good at my job. I have planned for retirement well. I am fantastic at crushing candy on my phone. That's not what your soul screams in the grandeur of creation. Your soul is screaming glory. Glory. Not glory to you, but but glory to God. Even if you don't know that that's what your soul is saying, your soul was created for the glory of God. You might try to ignore it. You might try to suppress it. You might try to deny it. But your soul knows that you are part of something bigger and that you were made by someone bigger. Your soul knows that. And when you catch a glimpse of the glory of God, that kind of glory does not leave you sitting in front of the fireplace. That glory, it it moves you. The glory of God, it, it moves you. Now, someone young might say, well, I, I can't move for the glory of God. I, I don't even have my driver's license yet. I can't move anywhere. I, you can. You can still move. You, you can read God's truth. You can pray. You can honor your parents. You, you can move to the glory of God in that way. Someone older may say, well, I, I, I can't move for the glory of God. I, I don't move much anymore, you know, I'm, Getting a little older, I don't get out as much as I used to. You know what? You can still move for the glory of God. You can read God's truth. You can pray. And you can encourage your kids and your grandkids. Or encourage the neighbor's kids and grandkids. But you can move. Someone might say, well, I'm I'm emotionally paralyzed. I, I can't move for the glory of God. Someone might actually even be physically paralyzed. But you can still move. 
you can still blink in glad adoration of the God who has redeemed you because the God who's redeemed you has promised those that he has redeemed that they will not just blink one day, but they will have new bodies. Johnny Erickson Tata turned 69 back in October. For the last 51 years, she has been a quadriplegic because of a diving accident. This is what she said about the promises of God for those who have been redeemed. I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me, or someone who is cerebral palsied or brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Only in the gospel, only in Jesus. In addition to 51 years as quadriplegic, eight years ago, she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, and she had a mastectomy and went through chemotherapy. Five years later, she was declared cancer-free. And then two months ago, they found a, a nodule on the spot where she had her mastectomy, and she now has cancer again. This is what she said and how she responded. When I received the unexpected news of cancer from my, uh, I'm going to get this word wrong. Somebody say it for me. Oncological? This is like the fifth sermon I've mispronounced a word. I need some grammar police and someone to follow me with a dictionary. Oncological surgeon. Listen to response. I relaxed and smiled. Knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. Is she delusional? I mean, 51 years with no feeling from the shoulders down, twice now with cancer, and her response is, my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. Can I just confess for us that what we normally say is, God, why is this happening? But, but her life is just been full of pain, and yet she says, I know even in this moment, my sovereign God, he dearly loves me, and he holds me tightly in his hands. How does she come to believe that? Here's how. Because she refuses to fight against her soul. 
See, her, her soul knows the truth, so she refuses to suppress the truth that captivates her soul. She refuses to deny the truth that captivates her soul. She refuses to ignore the truth that captivates her soul. And what is that truth? She knows the truth is she was made for the glory of God. She was made to enjoy the glory of God. She was made to display the glory of God. And the glory of God, even this day, is holding her tightly. Johnny is not like Jed. She's learned to move. Even from her wheelchair, she knows that her greatest good is the glory of God. And the glory of God is her greatest move. Her greatest move. You need to move. We need to move. And first and foremost, we need to move up. What does that mean? Well, Hosea was a prophet, and Hosea lived about the same time that Isaiah did. He faced all the same things in society and culture that Isaiah was facing, and and he had a message for the people too. This was his message, Hosea 6, verse 3. So let us know Let us press on to know the Lord. You need to move toward God. You need to move to know God. You need to move onward and upward to know the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, This is the one great business of human life, to know the Lord. Just marinate on that just for a moment. This is the one great business of human life to know the Lord. Is that your business? So, Stanley, what what did you do? Well, I was in the business of knowing the Lord. And then when it came time to retire, I didn't. It's our business. It's what we're created for. We're created to know the Lord. Whether we are 12 or 92, we are supposed to be pressing on to know the Lord. I'm 46 years old. I know squat about God. He's too grand. He's too great. I've been pursuing him since I was 11. I'm not even scratching the surface. His glory is too grand to even consider it's that great. We need to press on to know the Lord. It is the greatest business of a human life. Think about that. Spurgeon's dead on here. It's, It's more important than an education. It's more important than getting married. It's more important than having kids. It's more important than getting a good job and having a nice home. It's more important than having a good retirement and, and taking good travel trips. It's, it's more important than sports. It's more important than shopping. It's more important than everything. Those things are all great. They are all good. But the greatest thing that a human being can ever know is to know the Lord. The greatest thing that can ever happen in the life of a human being is that they would know the one true God and that the one true God would know 
them. I loved the word that Colin used a little while ago, encroached. Oh, that's good. Encroach, man. I hope God is encroaching on you now with his glory, his, his beauty. The greatest thing that can ever happen is that you would press on to know the Lord. So, how do you do that? How do you press on to know the Lord? Well, we could break it down really into into two parts. It's knowing his character and it's honoring his character. Knowing his character and honoring his character, or if we want to even simplify that, it's discovering and then it's doing. Discovering and, and doing. So what does it mean to discover the character of God? Well, can't we discover the character of God in creation? Yeah, we sure can. Boy, the the character of God is is all over creation. But we need to know God and we need to know his character beyond just as creator. We need to know God as redeemer. And by God's design, the way we do that is by engaging in and immersing ourselves in the word of God, in the Bible. Now, someone may say, the Bible, that's that's just an old textbook. it doesn't really apply anymore. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of rules in there that don't work in 2019. I mean, it's a noble book, but it's, yeah, it's probably mostly just, just legends and myths, right? Vaughn Roberts is a pastor in Oxford, England. He became a Christian when he was a teenager after reading the book of Matthew to himself. This is what he says. Many people assume that the Bible simply can't be trusted, and if you can't trust the Bible, then you can't trust Christianity, because the whole of the Christian message comes from the teaching of the Bible. He says this, and that was my view. I thought the Bible was just full of myths, and then I thought again, and I want to tell you why I changed my mind. For a start, I discovered that the Bible is absolutely rooted in real history. So you don't just have to look to the Bible. You can look to other ancient historians for references to Jesus. But the main reason why I'm convinced the Bible can be taken seriously and have changed my mind is because of the person of Jesus Christ. I read it and I was bowled over by this very remarkable man, the most remarkable man who's ever lived. It was as if he just walked off the pages and into my life. Why did he have that experience? He had that experience because God has designed the Bible to be the place that we find his character. God has designed the Bible to be the type of book that when we read it, it is as if he is walking off of the pages into our lives. That's how he designed his book. Paul said this to Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, and then he lists a lot of things, but the last part says, for every good work. The Bible is profitable for every good work. And that includes the work of knowing the character of God. The Bible is profitable for knowing the very character of the one true God. Yes, if we're standing at the Grand Canyon, we will see the character of God. It's gorgeous. But the Bible helps us see 
that it is the character of God that made that canyon grand and glorious. And the Bible helps us to see that it is the character of God that shows us the glory of God that we're supposed to know and show and enjoy. So pressing onward and upward to know the Lord, it involves discovering His character in the pages of the Bible. And pressing on to know the Lord involves us honoring that character once we've found it. What does that mean? Well, imagine after my wedding reception that I had gone over and and hugged my wife and hugged my parents and hugged my in-laws and said, man, great job, guys. Man, great, great rehearsal dinner. Man, fantastic ceremony. Boy, the reception, wonderful. Man, the cake, oh, fantastic. Man, this is so good. Great job, guys. You nailed it. Loved it. Hey, I'll see all you guys next year at the anniversary party. Peace out. No. No, see, that moment after the reception was the beginning. I had discovered in those two days the the character of a wedding ceremony. But the marriage was just beginning. The vows were just beginning, and they were only going to intensify. When you come in contact with the character of God as found in the pages of the Bible, things intensify. You are brought low. You are humbled. Something happens. When you come into contact with the character of God in the Bible, you become amazed that this God, the God of the universe, would stoop not just to reveal himself to you, but to rescue and redeem you. You become overwhelmed that that this God with this character that is beyond this world would rescue you and call you his own. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See, see what an incredible quality of love the Father has given and shown and bestowed on us that we, do you hear what the choir sang earlier? Who, who are we, God, that you even look upon us? That we should be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God. And so we are. And so we are. See, the character of God helps us see that we do not have to stay who we are, but we can become a child of the King. Listen, I don't know what your relationship is or was with your earthly parents, but I can say this. I can echo the words of Johnny Erickson Tata that if you're a true believer and follower of Jesus right now, then God dearly loves you right now. And he is dearly holding you right now because the quality of his love is incredible. Incredible. Stuart Townend put it this way, how deep the Father's love for us, how, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make wretches like us his treasure. History supports what the Bible reports about Jesus of Nazareth, that he he was crucified, that he suffered and died. 
And he suffered and died so that we would not have to be orphan zombies, suppressing and denying the glory of God, but rather we could be adopted and become children of the living God and that we could enjoy the glory of God from God the Father and his ever-loving, everlasting, never-changing love, love that is so grand and so glorious it can't even be measured. That kind of glory, that kind of love, from the only God with that kind of character, it demands honor. It demands it. Isaac Watts put it this way, love so amazing, so divine, it it demands my soul, my life, my all. It, It demands everything. And we find all of that glory and we find all of that love, we find all that character of God in and through the person of Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And when we hear and discover and learn and embrace and enjoy that truth about the character of God, we have to do something with it. We, we have to move. The glory of God, the character of God, it, it moves us. So we press on to know the character of the Lord. And once we discover his character, we press on and we use that character to fuel a life of obedience and honor to God. We discover his character and then we do something with it. We live for him. We move. Someone might say, ah, but the Bible, man, the Bible's so hard to understand. I mean, you got to go to that cemetery school like the preacher, you know, and and learn all that stuff, you know. Ain't no way you can figure it out on your own. Or I'm I'm about to offend you, or at least this should offend you. Soren Kierkegaard said this, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. Well, tell us how you really feel, huh? We pretend to be unable to understand it Because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Just a word of encouragement. You probably never want to say around here, well, I can't understand the Bible, right? Just just probably shouldn't. See, the Bible's not hard to understand. It's right there. But you know, when we understand it, we know I got to do it. So maybe I just won't read the Bible today. Maybe I'll just skip the sermon today. Maybe maybe I'll just keep kind of creating God in my image of, you know, what that looks like. I've had two conversations this week with different people in different communities about their version of God. And it's, it's so interesting how strong people are in creating what they think God is supposed to be like. I just want you to know that if you want to know who God is, then he has displayed himself by his design in the pages of the Bible. That's where we find his character. And you can understand it, I promise. Maybe not all of it. You might mispronounce some of those words and those names in the Old Testament. That's all right. The truth is still there, and the truth is easy to understand. You need to press on to know the Lord, and you need to press on to honor the Lord. But why should you do that? What's, what's a motivation for that? 
Hosea gives us one in the next part of verse 3. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. God's not hiding. He's never been hiding. He will never hide. As sure as the sun comes up in the morning, his desire is to help you see his glory. His desire is to rain down his glory and his grace and his love and his mercy in your life every day just like a hard spring rain. Last Saturday we were in Arkansas and bumped into uh, one of my old friends, John, and, and I always remember John's story that he told me about their honeymoon, and I think I've shared this with you all before. He and Angie went to a, a, a tropical island somewhere, and he said they could not get over how, like, perfectly beautiful all the plant life was. He said it was just amazing. And then come to find out from one of the locals that every day on the island there's a, a hard rain for, like, 15 minutes. So that, that little 15-minute rain every day, it gives the island everything that it needs to be beautiful. God delights and desires every single day to give you everything you need to be alive and beautiful in Him. And He desires to do that more than just 15 minutes a day. He desires to reign His grace with no end. Husband, your wife needs you to move up. She needs you to press on to know the Lord. Wife, your husband needs you to move up. He needs you to, to press on to know the Lord. Parents, your kids need you to move up. They need you to press on to know the Lord. And kids, your parents, they need you to move up. They need you to, to press on to know the Lord. Grandparents, your kids and your grandkids, they need you to move up. They need you to press on to know the Lord. Christian, this church needs you to move up. Need you to, to press on to know the Lord. And Christian, this community and the uttermost parts of the world, somewhere you may never go, those people and these people and the people in this community, they need you to move up. They need you to press on to know the Lord. We need to move. God's calling us to move. I came across an interesting description from a professor at UNC Charlotte about a French mathematician who lived during the late 1700s and early 1800s. And, and this is how he described this mathematician. When he was seven years old, he tried to stab a Spanish soldier with a lance. When he was 18, he talked a friend out of assassinating Napoleon. He once angered an archbishop so much that the holy man punched him in the face. He has negotiated with bandits, been chased by a mob, broken out of a prison. He is, Francois Argo, the most interesting physicist in the world. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good description for a mathematician physicist, right? 
I mean, kept somebody from assassinating Napoleon? Man, I mean, that's, I mean, I have a friend who graduated in math from Clemson. I don't think he's ever prevented an assassination with his math. I don't know. That's a pretty interesting description. Francois wrote an autobiography, and in his autobiography, he made note of a turning point in his life. He was still a young mathematician student, and he was discouraged, and he was frustrated, and he was down, and he just thought, man, I'm just giving up on math. I feel his pain. Just giving up. But then he found a a note in the used textbook that he was using. The note was from a French mathematician who died before Francois was even born. His name was Jean-Baptiste Laurent de Lambert. Yeah, I've been working on that all week. It's it's probably wrong, but it sounded really cool, didn't it? So the note that de Lambert wrote was to another young mathematician, maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 years, I don't know how long between, before Francois saw the note. And that other young mathematician, he was discouraged. He was down to. And this is the note that de Lambert wrote to him. Go on, sir. Go on. The difficulties you meet will resolve themselves as you advance. Proceed, and light will dawn and shine with increasing clearness on your path. Decades later, Francois read that, and then decades after that, he he wrote about what those five words meant to him. Go on, sir, go on. And he said, that maxim was my greatest master in mathematics. Hosea's plea is is really simple. Press on to know the Lord. Press on. And so I simply add to the prophet's words today, go on, sir. Go on. Go on, ma'am. Go on. Go on, go on, go on, and press on to know the Lord.